1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that not, would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Now you are a body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? 
Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Our Father in heaven, we know that we are weak, but you are strong. And so we pray that you'd help us all work together to listen to you tonight. Help me to be clear. Help all of us to have open ears and hearts and reflect on what you're saying. And we pray that this wonderful chapter would help us to keep growing as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are just visiting us, maybe new to church tonight, you've come on a really good night um, because... Not only have you just witnessed someone joining the church and kind of what that involves and what that means for Anita, but you've come on a night where we have a whole chapter explaining kind of how church should work, how we're actually supposed to function as a group. And actually, if, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you may be aware that the, the issue that the chapter starts with, so have a look down on page 959 if you've got a church Bible, Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, that issue, spiritual gifts, has been a real area for debate in the modern church across the UK and the world. And sadly, it's also been a real source of division in the church, which is hugely ironic when you look at what this chapter actually focuses on. See, I'm aware, if you are a Christian, you may come to this topic of spiritual gifts with all sorts of questions. And for some of us, it may have been a topic kind of locked in the back cupboard of our minds, kind of hazmat stickers all over it saying, danger, warning, do not enter, don't go near that. Others of us will have heard lots of talks on this issue. Growing up, I was like that. Lots of people telling us with huge confidence that they can explain precisely what each of these spiritual gifts is and how to get it. The method, that if you're not doing that, you're missing out on Christian living, you're missing out on spiritual life. So I'm guessing we come with lots of questions, perhaps questions people have raised uh, to us. And it was a topic the Corinthians had a lot of questions about, and that's why Paul starts now concerning, uh, if you want to look it up later, chapter 7 verse 1 is when he first uses that phrase to say, here's something you've written to me about in the letter that Paul's responding to. So the Corinthians have questions about spiritual gifts. But as always, we need to keep our questions back while we listen to what questions God has for us in this and every area. We will get to some of the questions you might be interested in, um, thinking about tongues and prophecy and how they work today. We will get to that in chapter 14. Actually, in chapter 12, God, through the Apostle Paul, has some real questions for us. Just uh, flick across to chapter 14, verse 12. 14, verse 12. This gives us a clue as to how the Corinthians felt about spiritual gifts. 14, verse 12. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit. This is an area the Corinthians were excited about. Paul's answer is, strive to excel in building up the church. We're going to see that a lot in chapter 12. The Corinthians are eager to get on to the topic of spiritual gifts, particularly for them the topic of tongues. 
Uh, We'll see that when we get to chapter 14. But tongues are mentioned 21 times in these three chapters and nowhere else in Paul's letters. So tongues was clearly something the Corinthians wanted to talk about, something they were excited about, presumably because it looks pretty impressive being able to speak an unknown language. And it actually looks like they were dividing up over that issue. So they were dividing into the spiritual haves and the have-nots based on a particular gift. We've seen them dividing before, haven't we? If you've been here through this series in 1 Corinthians, they were dividing over church leaders in chapters 1 to 4. I'm with him, I'm with him. They were dividing around the Lord's Supper and wealth differences in chapter 11. And now they're dividing over who is really spiritual, who really has the power of the Holy Spirit working in them. And they're doing that based on which particular gift people have or don't have. I can speak in tongues. That is not just a first century problem. When I was a teenager, I still remember it. I was in a tent uh, and someone asked me at a Christian summer festival whether I'd ever spoken in tongues. And at the time, my answer was no. And the follow-up question was, if you don't, Are you sure you're a real Christian? Dividing up Jesus' body based on a particular gift, it's not just a first century problem, it's a contemporary one. In fact, there's a whole wing of the Christian church that has taught that it's one thing to trust in Jesus. That kind of gets you into tier one Christianity. It's a bit like the pilot light being on in the boiler spiritually. But if you want to burst into flame as a Christian, well, you need a baptism in the Spirit understood as a second blessing, something that suddenly turns the spiritual lights on. Paul would not agree with that, would not agree with any kind of two-tier Christian teaching. He does encourage us elsewhere to pray that we be filled with the Spirit. We're always to be depending on God filling us with his power. But the Holy Spirit is not something a select top tier of Christians properly enjoy. He's someone all believers enjoy. I mean, just look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. End of the verse, of verse 13. All were made to drink of one spirit. You'll see on the back of the handout an outline of where we're going. And Paul starts off with with what will sound like a very, very basic point. Verses 1 to 3, our first point. Uh, It sounds like a very basic test, a basic test of what's spiritual. And the test is what's being said about Jesus. This might seem like a slightly odd place to start. If you look at it, they're they're asking about spiritual gifts, verse 1. Uh, And Paul wants to to take them back to the kind of ABC. They're they're wanting to talk about tongues, but Paul says, well, let's just back up a bit about spiritual gifts. Let's just get some basics on the table. And the absolute basic one is here in verse 3, this ABC reminder of how to discern whether someone is spiritual or not. Verse 3, therefore I want you to understand, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This is a really basic kind of point. 
I imagine Corinth was sitting there thinking, yeah, 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 we know this, we know this, come on, come on, come on. Actually, verse 2, Paul does remind them, I think to humble them, that in the past their spiritual discernment hasn't been brilliant. Like just a few years ago, they were worshipping pagan idols. And so he wants them to get the absolute basics straight. The test of whether someone is speaking in the Spirit of God is what do they say about Jesus? That's the test, the real test of spirituality. Of course, that fits exactly what Jesus Christ himself taught about the Holy Spirit when he was on earth. So in the upper room before he died, he said to his disciples, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Later, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. And so here we are in 1 Corinthians 12. The test of someone who has the Spirit and is speaking by the Spirit is that they'll say, Jesus is Lord. They'll speak of Jesus and his Lordship. And likewise, the test of someone who's not speaking by the Spirit, whatever else comes with it in terms of amazing signs and wonders, if someone's speaking against Jesus or cursing Jesus or denying Jesus, even, I think, sidelining Jesus, they cannot be speaking in the Spirit. Now, of course, that has kind of widespread ramifications for other religions, other spiritualities today. So many in our culture would see spirituality as just a free choice for the individual, a kind of pick and mix. doesn't matter what you choose as long as you believe in it. But the Bible says again and again that real spirituality, real worship of the real God... To worship God in spirit and in truth depends on coming to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So it's got real ramifications beyond the church. But why is Paul saying it to a church, to Christians in Corinth? Isn't that Jesus test just, it's just too low a bar, too kind of basic to decide who's spiritual in a church? I mean, doesn't it basically include every Christian? Doesn't every Christian say Jesus is Lord? That's the point. You see, the Corinthians were drawing a line down the middle aisle, saying, oh, this group over here who have this spiritual gift, they're the spiritual ones. And the rest, well, bottom-tier Christianity. Amazingly, it still happens today. Amazingly, it still happens with tongues today, just like in Corinth. But the reality is, verse 3, someone is spiritual if they're saying Jesus is Lord. That is, everyone who comes around the Lord's Supper that we've just had in chapter 11, everyone who trusts in Jesus' death has received the Holy Spirit, is baptized by the Spirit. As verse 13 puts it, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. If you want to know who has the spirit, look at who says Jesus is Lord, i.e. any Christian. Likewise, and this will be important when we get to chapter 14, if you want to be able to discern whether a particular bit of speech 
a particular teaching or word that claims to be spiritual really is, well, ask yourself the Jesus question. Is this anti-Jesus or sidelining Jesus, or is it proclaiming Jesus? Is it focusing us on Jesus and his lordship? Because that's what the Spirit does, is what he wants. There's a great illustration, if you want to think more about this. Uh, Jim Packer wrote a great book called Keeping in Step with the Spirit. He has an illustration that the Holy Spirit operates like a spotlight. Think of those huge floodlights below the Queensferry crossing. They don't illuminate themselves, they point to the bridge. The way you know if the power is fully on when it comes to a floodlight is whether you can see the bridge. Is it clear? Is it shining bright? As Jesus said, he will witness about me. He will glorify me. And so therefore, I've put the question on the sheet, what would a spirit-filled church or person look like? Well, they'll speak a lot about Jesus and his lordship. And if you think back to when we went through Acts in our series there, that was precisely what we saw. What happened when the Spirit filled the disciples on the day of Pentecost? Well, Peter stood up and spoke about Jesus. What happened after the first arrests when they pray for boldness? Well, the, the early Christians are filled with the Spirit and they go on speaking about Jesus. What happens with Stephen, the first martyr? A man full of the Spirit speaks of Jesus. That's point one. The basic foundation is laid. Spiritual sp speech. If you want to test what's spiritual in terms of words and who is spiritual in terms of people, well, will they say Jesus is Lord? Which means, and you may have heard this, I've certainly heard this before, if, if you, as someone who has said or had said to, had said to you that some churches are Bible churches, some churches are spirit churches, or I think even worse than, that's a false antithesis, but even worse than that is some churches talk about, a lot about Jesus but don't take the work of the Spirit properly, like seriously. Now Jesus said the work of the Spirit is to witness to him, to glorify him, to point to him. That's point one. And it should be a real point to unite us because each of us here who's a Christian has been united by the Spirit to say Jesus is Lord. And Paul wants that basic foundation in place before he goes on to speak about the variety of gifts that God gives to the church. And there's absolute unity that we all have the Spirit and before he talks about the variety that the Spirit gives. So let's move on to point two. There's a real variety of gifts and service. A real variety of gifts and service. Just look, verse four. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 4, there's a variety of gifts. Verse 5, there's varieties of service. Verse 6, there's varieties of activities. The fact Paul uses those three different terms shows that he's trying to broaden the discussion a bit. He's trying to get these Corinthians to think about all the ways they serve one another at church, all the diversity of activities, service, and gift. There are just so many different abilities needed to make a church function well. 
whether it's playing the piano for the kind of three-year-olds upstairs in the morning or setting out the chairs that we're all sitting on or clearing them up afterwards or praying with someone who's sick in hospital, providing food for young mums, welcoming folks on Sunday, serving the soup to students. I could go on and on and on and on and on. Hundreds of tasks to make a church family work well together. And they are really different tasks, which different people are good at. Real variety. But notice, one God... One triune God empowering it all. So verse 4, God the Spirit. Verse 5, Jesus, God the Son, the Lord. And verse 6, God the Father empowering everyone. So the same God. Who is your gift from? Well, from the one triune God. Or in other words, to these Corinthians, your gift or your service, your activity, it's not actually about you It's not from me. It's not something I've produced, something I'm able to do because of me. It's not testament to my power. It's not even something I'm the kind of final boss of. So how could they be making themselves feel important by the particular kind of gift they have? See, even if my gift is different to yours, and this particular gift means you get to stand up in front of the lectern and the microphone, that doesn't actually mean there's any real difference between us. It's a gift from the same Spirit to serve the same Lord in the power of the same Almighty Father. Just because this one's more visible, it says nothing about me. It's not my thing, it's His. It's not mine to decide what I do with it, it's His. Which, just as an aside, means that church should be one context where false modesty has no place. You know how that goes. Someone's a kind of, I don't know, a grade eight musician. They've played in multiple semi-professional bands previously. And they get asked, have you got any particular abilities, ways you could serve? And they say, I'm okay at piano. This is absurd. They're actually really good. But of course, we, 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 don't, we don't say when we're actually good at something. That might seem like showing off or tooting our own horn. But that shows we've forgotten who the gift comes from. You see, false humility, false modesty, is actually a Christianized version of a very worldly assumption. The assumption is my abilities are testament to me. As if I'm a self-made man, as if abilities I have are not gifts from a creator, as if I've conjured them up to my credit. It's just nonsense. The Christian says, well... God's made me like this. God's given me what I'm good at. He empowers me to do that. He gave. He can take it away. It's nothing to my credit. It frees us from having to just pretend and hide things we're genuinely good at. Or, conversely, bluff and hide things we're bad at. Pretend that we're good at everything and I never need help. It's fine to be honest with ourselves and each other. It's a great conversation to have with someone at church. What's God made you really good at? And what are you really bad at that you appreciate other people can do in the church? Not to our credit, but to his praise. Secondly, that under this um, second point, um, they're from one God. They're also for one purpose. All of these gifts are, verse 7, for the common good. 
I actually think that's one of the most important verses on spiritual gifts and service in church in the whole of the New Testament. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It is the, the, the flat opposite of what the Corinthians were viewing their gifts for. Uh, they thought the gift is all about me. It's, it makes me look good. It sets me apart from all of the kind of riffraff over there, the plebs in church, the people who don't really pull their weight, don't really have the capabilities that I have. No. The only reason God's given me that gift, you that gift, all the variety of gifts, the only reason is for the good of everyone else for the good of building up the church. Spiritual gifts are not to make me look or feel special, but to build us all up. As Paul says later, that verse I showed you in chapter 14, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That's hugely helpful. It means a great question to ask. If you're wondering what are my spiritual gifts? What gifts has the Spirit given me? A great way to start is, what does the church need at the moment? And could I do any of that? Let me spell out some of the implications that we've all been given gifts by the Spirit for the common good. Firstly, very simply, the question, am I actually serving? It's one of the questions we we heard in in, um, uh, the membership questions, wasn't it? Will I use my gifts for the good of the church? Am I serving? Am I serving how I can, when I can? Secondly, if I am serving, is the way I'm serving, serving for the common good rather than for my goods? I think this is profoundly heart-searching. It's a good thing for us all to reflect on. Um, it's tricky because lots of us do actually enjoy serving in an area we're particularly gifted for. It's one of the wonderful things about the way God makes us, that we can actually enjoy using our gifts. We can get satisfaction from it. There's a blessing in doing the role God's equipped us for. But sometimes the common good will mean I'll have to put down the thing I most enjoy to do the thing I can also do but don't enjoy quite as much, but is more needed. Or sometimes it might mean I need to share the role with someone else or step back a little to train someone. It's always the case that some areas of church need will be more acute than others. Is my ultimate goal the common good, or my self-satisfaction? To give you a, a positive example, I had a wonderful, wonderful chat last year, really encouraging, with someone who, who was able as a Bible study leader, so could, could serve in one of our youth groups, and also was very able as a singer, and could sing in, in, our, in the bands. Uh, at the time, we were very short of youth leaders. And so we had a chat uh, where she was saying to me that though the singing might be more fun and the youth group more draining, which is very realistic, um, <laughs> uh, this person actually thought, well, if that's what's needed, if that's the common good, that's what I'm going to do. Wonderful thing. Exactly right. Not deciding service based purely on what do I enjoy, but what does this church family need right now? that I could help with. It's not always an easy thing to do. It's always possible in church life for for our identity to become bound up with the particular way we serve or the particular gift we're using. 
over the years in different churches, I've sometimes heard the words, I must be allowed to use my gift, rather than, this is one of my gifts, I think. What is the common good needing? What does the church need right now? And the difference there is, is my gift for my self-expression? Or is the gift something God owns and is given for his church to grow? It's the world's view that slipped into Corinth and will often slip into churches today. It's the world's view to say, I must be allowed to be myself. I must do what I want. Not to ask the love question, how can I best serve others for their good? Sometimes we'll need each other's help to discern what, what our gifts and abilities are. And we need help to find out what the needs are, but sometimes we also need help to, to discover what we're actually good at. And um, sometimes we don't realize we're good at something. Sometimes we, we think we are good at something and we're not as good as we think we are. We need each other to help. I hope it's something that um, small groups chat together about. Maybe a small group leader catching up with a coffee uh, might chat about that. I hope it's something we, we, we do talk with new members about it. Um, how could you serve? What's God made you good at? What capacities has God given you? And wonderfully, when we do that kind of thing, we'll discover that there is a real variety in how the Holy Spirit equips us for gifts and service. Verses 8 to 11. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. I mean, just note the, the variety there is again. There really are all sorts of different gifts and service. And don't think that's the complete list. Um, you actually get another list in verse 28. Uh, 28 to 30 is another list. Um, and it's not, even those two put together isn't a comprehensive list of the gifts um, that the Spirit gives. Elsewhere in the, in the New Testament, like Romans 12, 1 Peter, you get other lists, and not all the lists are the same. So this isn't a kind of checklist of, right, we must have this list of gifts and no others. This is the definitive, prescriptive, must have these gifts in every church. No, I think Paul's picked some of these, some of them because they're the ones that Corinth are particularly excited about, uh, some of them just to show the huge variety. So some of the first list uh, in, in 8 to, to 11 are uh, really spectacular. Uh, some of the second list, less so. Uh, verse 28, gifts of healing, spectacular. Helping, unspectacular. Administrating various kinds of tongues. A whole mixture of gifts, a whole variety of gifts. Now, the reality is some of those phrases are quite hard to pin down. We'll think about tongues and prophecy in two weeks' time. Um, uh, and I have been to many sessions where I've been told with real confidence that someone knows what a word of knowledge or an utterance of wisdom is. Um, whereas actually here, there isn't quite enough information to tell. Because that's not the point Paul's making the point he's making is that whatever your gift, wherever it is on the visibly supernatural spectrum or not, there's just one Holy Spirit giving gifts. And it's his choice, verse 11. He apportions to each one individually as he wills. The point being, Corinth, 
Some of you may speak in tongues. Some of you may not. Some of, may, some of you may have seen someone healed. Some of you may be helping and doing administration. It's no less a gift of God's Spirit. I wonder if we really believe that. That the gifts are all equally empowered by God, equally valuable and necessary. doesn't matter if it's up front or behind the scenes. doesn't matter if it involves teaching the Bible or sorting out practicalities. doesn't matter if it serves those in crisis or those who are doing fairly well. doesn't matter whether it's evangelistically facing or inward-looking to build up the church. doesn't matter whether it's visibly uh, impressive or invisibly prayerful. doesn't matter whether it's verbal or silent doesn't matter whether it's physical or mental, financial, practical, relational. Each gift is from the Spirit. The same sovereign Spirit gives a variety of gifts. That's point two. And so finally, point three, Paul gives a a kind of illustration to drive this home. The illustration that we as a church, a local church, function as a body with lots of body parts. Actually, I called it an illustration, but I'm not sure that's quite right. Because Paul says, not we're like a body, but we are a body. End of verse 12. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. We're like a body, or we are a body, because just like a human body, we're a single entity with lots of different parts, and the different parts do different bits. Uh, my eyes and my hands are doing different things at the moment. Paul wants to really ram that point home. So just look how many times he says it. Verse 12, just as the body is one and has many members, that's the first time. Time number two, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So that's two. Verse 14, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. That's three. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? That's four. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. That's five. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Six times. One body, many parts. One body, many members. All different, but together making one body. And just like the human body, healthy growth happens when all the parts are working well. So when Grace um, went to A&E at Six Kids, uh, yesterday, um, fever and all sorts of pains. Uh, it was very clear that there was something going wrong in her body. We thought maybe appendicitis. Uh, amazing the effect that can have on the whole body, but it wasn't. And then we thought kidney infection. It wasn't. Um, they think now it's just like a flu virus. So it slightly ruins the illustration. But when one part of your body goes wrong, it really affects the whole. Really affects the whole. If something isn't functioning, because every part is needed. At no point did the doctors say to Grace, oh, don't worry, we'll just ignore that bit. Just plough on without it. So it is with Christ and the local church, says Paul. We may be different backgrounds, verse 13. We've got racial differences, Jews or Greeks. We've got economic differences, slaves or free. We may have different gifts. We've been thinking about that. But every part of the body is absolutely necessary. And the implications of that, firstly, from verse 15 onwards, is uh, verse 14 onwards, there's, there's no room for inferiority, no place for someone saying or thinking, I don't belong here, 
I'm just not needed in this church family. I think it's surprisingly easy for that to happen, especially in a big church. It's easy to fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to someone else and thinking, well, because I'm not that personality or I don't have that gift or I don't have as much capacity as that person, well, I'm a bit of a waste of space. I'm not sure I'm really got much to contribute. God does not agree. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Same with the ear, looking sideways at the eye in verse 16. Does that attitude still happen today? Absolutely it does. And I think it does in subtle ways as well. So in our kind of low commitment, highly individualistic culture, I think we can easily get into the habit of thinking, well, what's the problem with missing a, a Sunday or, or small groups? Church is just going to run on without me perfectly well. It doesn't really make any discernible difference whether I'm there or not. Or someone thinks, well, I haven't really got round to serving or to giving, but I mean, it looks like things are pretty sorted without me. The kind of passenger Christianity rather than gospel partnership Christianity, which is what God wants. I think it can happen in churches where particular gifts are really respected or valued. So maybe here, uh, you might think, or oh, if I don't have the, the gift of Bible teaching, or if I can't lead a small group, well, maybe I haven't got that much to offer. Not as much as the people up front. But verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? As it is, God's arranged the members in the body, each one of them, including you, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? The church needs all sorts of people, all sorts of gifts and abilities and backgrounds, and God deliberately designed it that way. He designed it for us all to be needed. Which is striking because often when you look at churches, what ends up happening is a small number of people run around getting exhausted trying to do everything. That's not how God designed the body. It can happen for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes because others aren't willing to volunteer when it's costly. And so those who are servant-hearted take too much of a burden. Sometimes it would be uh, not, not communicating the needs well. Sometimes it might be those at the center struggling to let go and share responsibility with others. But actually underlying all of those things and all the other reasons that can happen, underlying all of them is the fundamental issue. Do we believe we're a single body that needs every member? To play its part. So many people today see church as something we come to, not something we are. We are a body. Like it or not, believe it or not, that's what God's made us. We can't think like the big machine will run fine without me. So in, no inferiority. Definitely no superiority, verse 21 onwards. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Um, easy to look down on people, often because we only see some of their service. Well, <coughs> they've never been to prayer meeting. Um, they don't seem to give much money. They're not on many service rotors. Uh, but actually, 
God thinks every person is needed. And actually, Paul goes on, verse 22 onwards, I think to consider people who, who may genuinely not be able to serve much at the moment. Might be the really young or the really old. Might be those going through sickness or other struggles, emotional or mental exhaustion, spiritual battle, people struggling with work or family or caring for relatives. And he says, in a church body, you don't just leave them behind. You don't just kind of cut them off like dead weights from a hot air balloon so the strong can all just power up into the sky. No, we're one body. To not care for a suffering member is the equivalent of amputation. We're one body. It's non-negotiable that we care for every body part, however productive or otherwise they may seem to be. God's plan is for church not to run like a business, but not even actually just like a family, but a body. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member's honored, all rejoice together. It's a wonderful vision. It's such a different vision from society around us, where it's everyone for themselves, where it's keep my problems to myself. Don't be a burden on others. No, God wants us to be a burden on each other, to share the burden. And let me say, we're one of the families in church who are sometimes pretty weak, and it is such a blessing to have people looking after us, even this weekend. Not everyone has the same gift. That's where he comes back to land. We're out of time. Um, But that list of questions, um, verse 29, are all apostles, is expecting the answer no. Are all prophets, expecting the answer no. Are all teachers, expecting the answer no. Do all work miracles, no. Do all possess gifts of healing, no. Do all speak with tongues, no. Do all interpret, no. And so Corinthians, don't judge who is spiritual based on the particular thing they do, or the particular gift they have. Anyone who says Jesus is Lord has the Holy Spirit, is part of the church family. Every Christian has the Spirit. And so every Christian is needed to serve, to get a body growing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Even tonight, as we gather as church this evening... Many of us are so conscious of, of the many, many different people who are serving to make tonight happen and have been serving all through the week in different ways to enable this church family to grow. We praise you for the power of your Holy Spirit amongst us, equipping us with gifts to serve one another. And we do pray for any who do feel on the edge, who feel like um, I'm not needed, I don't belong. Please, Lord, would you help us and them Um, to to, uh, include them in service in this particular church family. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.